Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of May 28th, 2022, from my apartment on New York's Lower East Side. And uh, loathe as I am to return for yet a third episode to Noam Chomsky. Well, uh, for better or worse, I've decided that Chomsky literally saying exactly the same thing as Henry Kissinger is just an irony too delicious to pass up. So I'm going to um, start by returning once again to the uh, Chomsky interview we discussed a couple of podcasts ago that ran on the um, Current Affairs website conducted by their editor, Nathan J. Robinson, on April 13th, entitled Noam Chomsky on How to Prevent World War III. The intro deck reads, The eminent scholar on the worsening threat of nuclear warfare, how to end the war in Ukraine, the self-justifying myths propagated by imperial powers, and more. So reads the intro deck. Now I'm going to quote a little from the text, and as in all of the quotes throughout this podcast, I am condensing slightly for length, but not otherwise deviating from the verbatim, and by no means editing in such a way as to at all alter meaning. And when I add my uh, brief editorial interjections here and there, uh, it should hopefully be evident from my tone of voice. So uh, forthwith, From the text, in this world, there are two options with regard to Ukraine. As we know, one option is a negotiated settlement, which will offer Putin an escape, an ugly settlement. The other is to make it explicit and clear to Putin and the small circle of men around him that you have no escape. You're going to a war crimes trial no matter what you do. What does that mean? It means, go ahead and obliterate Ukraine, and go on to lay the basis for a terminal war. Then a little further on, he uh, lays out his outline for what a uh, negotiated settlement could look like from the text. We know the basic framework is neutralization of Ukraine, some kind of accommodation for the Donbass region, with a high level of autonomy, maybe within some federal structure in Ukraine, and recognizing that, like it or not, Crimea is not on the table. You may not like it, you may not like the fact that there's a hurricane coming tomorrow, but you can't stop it by saying, I don't like hurricanes, or I don't recognize hurricanes. That doesn't do any good, and the fact of the matter is, every rational analyst knows that Crimea is, for now, off the table. That's the alternative to the destruction of Ukraine and nuclear war. You can make heroic statements, if you'd like, about not liking hurricanes or not liking the solution, but that's not doing anyone any good. End quote. In that same interview, Chomsky invokes Henry Kissinger, 
and his responsibility for the massive bombing campaign in Cambodia and overthrowing the parliamentary government in Chile, quote-unquote, as an example of bad U.S. motives, without noticing somehow that this same imperial criminality is now displayed by Putin, who is undertaking a massive bombing campaign in Ukraine and attempting to overthrow the parliamentary government in Ukraine. And Chomsky is making excuses for it and arguing for giving in to it and rewarding it. He's completely adopted the Kissingerian world view, even as he gets on his moral high horse to diss Henry Kissinger. But it gets even better. It turns out that Kissinger himself is saying the same damn thing about Ukraine that Chomsky is saying in almost the same damn words. Reading from Business Insider of May 24th from the text, Henry Kissinger said Ukraine must concede territory to Russia to end the war and warned the West that a humiliating defeat for Russia could result in wider destabilization. The statesman, now 98, so just a few years older than Chomsky, made the comments in a conference at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Kissinger was the architect of the detente with China under the Nixon administration, and he's one of the world's foremost advocates of real politique, in which nations put morals and principles aside to achieve their aims. Quote, Negotiations need to begin in the next two months before it creates upheavals and tensions that will not be easily overcome. Ideally, the dividing line should be a return to the status quo ante, Kissinger said. Pursuing the war beyond that point would not be about the freedom of Ukraine, but a new war against Russia itself, he added. Status quo ante means how things were before. Kissinger's comments imply that Ukraine should accept a peace deal to restore the situation to what it was before February 24th, where Russia formally controlled the Crimea Peninsula and informally controlled part of the Donetsk region in eastern Ukraine. Ukrainian officials have opposed the idea that they should give up any territory End quote. Now, Zelensky, President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine, quickly reacted by telling Henry the K where to get off. Quote, when Ukraine says that it will fight until it regains all its territories, it means only one thing, that Ukraine will fight until it regains all its territories. This is about independence and sovereignty. End quote. And it is just blowing my mind what an exact replay of 1938 to 1939 all this is. Oh, Hitler will be content with Austria and Sudetenland. Appeasing his aggression will bring peace in our lifetime, in Neville Chamberlain's now infamous phrase upon signing the Munich Pact that recognized German annexation of the Sudetenland in western Czechoslovakia in September 1938, 
almost exactly a year before the war began, the most destructive war in human history that would claim nearly 100 million lives and usher in the nuclear age. So, we already saw this movie, folks, and it really sucked the first time. We really do not need a sequel, only this time with nuclear weapons. Now, I don't know if we'll be able to avoid that sequel by not appeasing the aggressor, but it isn't like the appeasement strategy has never been tried. So Chomsky plugging this as the way to prevent World War III, quote-unquote, is pretty damn glib and ahistorical. And I'll add that the world has been appeasing Putin for eight years. Apart from some token ineffectual sanctions, nothing was done when he gobbled up the Crimean Peninsula and the Donbass in 2014. And here we are. So thus far, this whole appeasement thing has not exactly been a smashing success, has it? But this um, Chomsky-Kissinger convergence is very telling. Chomsky, in his monomaniacal fixation with the crimes of U.S. imperialism, as if no other crimes or imperialism exist, has internalized the imperial perspective. It's what I call imperial narcissism. Chomsky manifests the exact same attitude as what the Kissingerians call real politic. And the paleocons to their right, like Chas Freeman, who was favorably cited by Chomsky in that same interview, call realism or pragmatism. Now, as we noted in our last podcast, Chomsky, in another recent interview of April, uh, with an outfit calling itself Edu Kitchen, actually praised Donald Trump while also invoking George Orwell. This is so viscerally offensive. Orwell would shit at his name and legacy being invoked in the same spiel in which the fascist Trump was praised for advocating appeasement of Russia. But now I would like to examine some of Chomsky's own verbiage in this um, current affairs interview in light of George Orwell's critically important 1945 essay, Politics and the English Language. Because the fact of the matter is, every rational analyst knows, these are examples of a rhetorical device that Orwell in that essay called Verbal False Limbs. And the fact that Chomsky is just stringing them together like this is really kind of embarrassing. So uh, let's see what Orwell had to say about this from his 1945 essay, Politics in the English Language, from the text. As soon as certain topics are raised, the concrete melts into the abstract, and no one seems able to think of turns of speech that are not hackneyed. Prose consists less and less of words chosen for the sake of their meaning, and more and more of phrases tacked together like the sections of a prefabricated henhouse. 
I list below, with notes and examples, various of the tricks by means of which the work of prose construction is habitually dodged. And then he names a few, but I'm going to jump ahead to the one that he calls verbal false limbs. These save the trouble of picking out appropriate verbs and nouns, and at the same time pad each sentence with extra syllables, which give it an appearance of symmetry. Characteristic phrases are render inoperative, militate against, prove unacceptable, make contact with, be subject to, give rise to, give grounds for, have the effect of, play a leading part or role in, make itself felt, take effect, exhibit a tendency to, serve the purpose of, etc., etc. And we may add, the fact of the matter is, and every rational analyst knows, modern writing, at its worst, does not consist in picking out words for the sake of their meaning, It consists in gumming together long strips of words which have already been set in order by someone else and making the results presentable by sheer humbug. The attraction of this way of writing is that it is easy. It is easier, even quicker once you have the habit, to say, in my opinion, it is not an unjustifiable assumption than to say, I think. If you use the ready-made phrases you not only don't have to hunt about for the words, you also don't have to bother with the rhythms of your sentences since the phrases are generally so arranged as to be more or less euphonious. Tags like a consideration which we should do well to bear in mind or a conclusion to which all of us would readily assent will serve many a sentence from coming down with a bump. End quote. And obviously, that's exactly what Chomsky has done with the fact of the matter is, every rational analyst knows. Sure signs that his brain is no longer really engaged, and he's just spewing a line. What do these verbal false limbs add to the sentence? Nothing. They're just there to loan it a completely empty air of authority. In other words, sheer Humbug. A more sinister is um, Chomsky's use of the word neutralization, which in this context is pretty damn alarming and recalls the Pentagon brass talking about the pacification of Vietnam in the 1960s. And here's another very telling passage from the Orwell essay written some 20 years before the Tet Offensive, 23 years to be precise, from the text, in our time, political speech and writing are largely the defense of the indefensible. Things like the continuance of British rule in India, the Russian purges and deportations, the dropping of the atom bombs on Japan, can indeed be defended but only by arguments which are too brutal for most people to face and which do not square with the professed aims of political parties. Thus, political language has to consist largely of euphemism, question-begging, and sheer cloudy vagueness. 
Defenseless villages are bombarded from the air, the inhabitants driven out into the countryside, the cattle machine-gunned, the huts set on fire with incendiary bullets. This is called pacification. Millions of peasants are robbed of their farms and sent trudging along the roads with no more than they can carry. This is called transfer of population, or rectification of frontiers. People are imprisoned for years without trial, or shot in the back of the neck, or sent to die of scurvy in Arctic lumber camps. This is called elimination of unreliable elements. Such phraseology is needed if one wants to name things without calling up mental pictures of them. Political language, and with variations, this is true of all political parties, from conservatives to anarchists, is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable and to give an appearance of solidity to pure wind. End quote. So for Chomsky, the destruction of Mariupol and the massacres at Buka and Borodyanka, the forced deportations we now see in the Donbass are neutralization. Just as for Kissinger, defenseless villages being bombarded from the air in Vietnam and Cambodia, the inhabitants forcibly deported to strategic hamlets was pacification. I will uh, note as an aside Orwell's use of the term question-begging, which is not merely a synonym for raising the question, as it is incorrectly used today, but refers to a particular logical fallacy oft employed in political arguments, that of circular reasoning. That is, positing as granted that which is in question simply restating the premise under debate in different words, as if it were a settled conclusion. Rather than answering the question, you're begging the question itself for an answer. Get it? For example, Ukraine is a Nazi state because it's run by Nazis. Because there was a Nazi coup in 2014. Those are the talking points regurgitated endlessly by Putin's mouthpieces on social media and is just going round in circles, basing one baseless claim on another. Again, sheer humbug. Although Chomsky is using a different fallacy with this every rational analyst knows line, appeal to authority, or argumentum ad vericundium, as the rhetoricians call it, Stating that an opinion is embraced by, in this case, unnamed authorities, as if that loans it any weight, which it does not. Again, sheer humbug. Now, this is distinct from citing actual named authorities on more objective matters, such as, say, an actual named, well-informed military analyst on Ukraine's odds for prevailing in the war. That could be useful. But what Chomsky did is just loaning a bogus air of authority to an opinion, which spares you the effort of actually having to make a case for that opinion. And in fact, there actually is a certain element of question-begging to it, 
because we may assume that it is only analysts who accept Chomsky's conclusions who he would consider rational. And Chomsky is a repeat offender now with this crap and is being given, as we have noticed, an embarrassingly great many opportunities to spew it. It's just over the top how many sycophantic softball interviews with Chomsky on Ukraine have run over the past weeks. One is cited in an open letter to Noam Chomsky and other like-minded intellectuals, quote-unquote, on the Russia-Ukrainian war by um, Yuri Gorodnichenko, professor of economics at UC Berkeley, which ran on May 19th, co-authored with three other presumably Ukrainian or Ukrainian-American scholars, Anastasia Fedek, also of University of California at Berkeley, Bodan Kukarski of the City University of New York, and Ilona Sologub of Vox Ukraine, who happily dissent from Chomsky's sinister humbug from the text of their open letter to Noam Chomsky and other like-minded intellectuals on the Russia-Ukraine war from the text. In your interview with Jeremy Scahill at The Intercept of April 14th, you claimed, quote, the fact of the matter is Crimea is off the table. (laughs) Yet again, we may not like it. Crimeans apparently do like it, end quote. We wish to bring to your attention several historical facts. First, Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014 has violated the Budapest Memorandum, in which it promised to respect and protect Ukrainian borders, including Crimea, the Treaty of Friendship, Partnership, and Cooperation, which it signed with Ukraine in 1997, with the same promises, and, according to the order of the UN International Court of Justice, it violated international law. A reference to the World Court ruling of March 16th. They go on to make other historical points, but I'm going to cut to the conclusion where they make a point that we here on Counter Vortex have made before, once again, from the text. Arguably, any concessions to Russia will not reduce the probability of a nuclear war, but lead to escalation. If Ukraine falls, Russia may attack other countries, Moldova, Georgia, Kazakhstan, Finland, or Sweden, and can also use its nuclear blackmail to push the rest of Europe into submission. And Russia is not the only nuclear power in the world. Other countries, such as China, India, Pakistan, and North Korea, are watching. Just imagine what will happen if they learn that nuclear powers can get whatever they want using nuclear blackmail. Professor Chomsky, we hope you will consider the facts and reevaluate your conclusions. If you truly value Ukrainian lives as you claim to, we would like to kindly ask you to refrain from adding further fuel to the Russian war machine by spreading views very much akin to Russian propaganda. End quote. Yeah, <laughs> all too charitable characterization. 
And I will add a few thoughts on this notion that the people of Crimea want to be under Russian rule again. Shamsky also said that in a 2021 interview with Truthout, and I quote, What happened in 2014, whatever one thinks of it, amounted to a coup with U.S. support that replaced the Russian-oriented government by a Western-oriented one. That led Russia to annex Crimea, mainly to protect its sole warm water port and naval base, and apparently with the agreement of a considerable majority of the Crimean population. End quote. Okay, now this is one, a fiction. There was no coup in Ukraine. There was a popular protest movement that finally, after months of occupation of Maidan Square in Kyiv, prompted Parliament, not the military, but Parliament, to remove the Russian-oriented government, as it had the power to do under Ukraine's political system. This is also, two, an exercise in blaming the aggrieved party, like Ukraine deserved to get invaded and have a chunk of its territory annexed because it changed its government. And finally, three, it completely ignores the Tartars, the indigenous Muslim and Turkic people of the Crimean Peninsula who have been reduced to a minority in their homeland by ethnocidal and genocidal means that persist today. May 18th, just last week, was, until 2014, commemorated in Crimea as a memorial day for the victims of the genocide of the Crimean Tartar people. On that day, in 1944, Joseph Stalin began the forcible deportation of the entire population of the Crimean Tartars, who had survived the Nazi occupation of the peninsula. Over 200,000 Tartars were packed into railroad cattle cars and sent to remote locations in Siberia and Central Asia. Nearly 50% of the Crimean Tartar population perished in the first two years of the exile due to harsh conditions. So, once again, we have Russian authorities all too literally engaging in Nazi-like behavior in the name of denazification, exactly as today. Utterly terrifying. So the Crimean Tartars are now loath to be back under Russian rule and have had their regional autonomy that they had enjoyed under Ukrainian rule unilaterally abrogated by Russia, and their leaders are being imprisoned for their peaceful opposition to the annexation of their homeland. And for Chomsky, it's like they don't even exist. Another example is called out by another critic. And again, I am certainly heartened that finally Chomsky is being met with some principled dissent from within progressive circles, a piece entitled, quite aptly, Harsh Critique of Chomsky on Ukraine by Stanley Heller, which appears on the um, New Politics website, dated April 18th, from the text, 
On April 8th, Noam Chomsky was in a dialogue with Bill Fletcher Jr. live on The Real News. The discussion was called A Left Response to the Russian Invasion of Ukraine. Though Chomsky denounced the Russian invasion of Ukraine, calling it a crime of aggression, it wouldn't be far wrong to say Chomsky placed all the blame for Russia's attack on the U.S. government. The U.S., he said, crossed obvious red lines when it was clear that Russia would react violently. The title of the event should have been Chomsky calls for real politique in the 21st century. All the authorities he quoted in support of his arguments were strategists, diplomats, and ambassadors like George Kennan, Jack Matlock, Chas Freeman, CIA directors, and the like. These are realists political theorists in a tradition going all the way back to Machiavelli that rejected talking about how states should act and instead talk about how they did act and how a prince or statesman had to be realistic. Realists want nations to respect great powers, spheres of influence, national interests, the balance of power, etc., and rail against human rights democracy, equality, or other moral considerations as a major concern for foreign policy. Now, what has any of that to do with us on the left? Where are the matters dear to us, like democracy, equality, class, and national self-determination? In fact, not a single leftist was mentioned by Chomsky in his hour-long interview. End quote. And thank you, Stanley Heller. Reading this makes me feel a little less lonely. So, uh, uh, which team are you on, Chomsky? This is a case study in the Hegelian concept of the paradoxical interpenetration of opposites. Chomsky has morphed into the precise opposite of what he once stood for. The man who accused the United States of supporting what he called sub-fascism in South America, his term for the military regimes of the 1970s, has now become, in objective terms, a supporter of fascism and dictatorship, joining ranks with the very Beltway establishment he built a career opposing. I don't, for the life of me, get why more people don't realize this. And finally, I will note that Chomsky's own Ukrainian translator, Artem Chapai called him out for abetting Russian propaganda. He wrote on March 3rd, and I read from the text, a short letter to some Western intellectuals. Please share to whom it may concern. I can't write anything long because we're still on the run with my kids who are right here next to me. So in brief, Ukraine was not dragged into war, meaning by the West, I assume. It was attacked without even a pretext like Hitler's attack on Poland. Right now, you're witnessing overt Russian imperialism. I don't want to make any flawed historical comparisons, but empires have lost wars against smaller peoples before. And in the end, the Russian imperialist government must lose. When you're being bombed, 
When you're thinking of ways to evacuate your kids, you have a different perspective than when you're sitting cozy in an office somewhere in Arizona. Yes, Noam Chomsky, I'm looking at you among others. And uh, this is a reference to uh, Chomsky, long associated with MIT, now working for the University of Arizona. Returning to Artem Chapai's words, I started as a volunteer translator of the responsibility of intellectuals, Chomsky's famous 1967 essay on the necessity to protest the war in Vietnam, into Ukrainian. Now I'm aghast at how you mention in one sentence in the lead up to this invasion, and here he again quotes from that 2021 interview with Truthout, quote, what happened in 2014, whatever one thinks of it, amounted to a coup with U.S. support that led Russia to annex Crimea, end quote. What if the U.S. occupied Baja California, which I, Bill Weinberg, will point out that it attempted to do numerous times in the so-called filibuster adventures of the 19th century? I beg you to listen to the local voices here on the ground, not some sages sitting at the center of global power. Please start your analysis with the suffering of millions of people rather than geopolitical chess moves. Start with the columns of refugees, people with their kids, their elders, and their pets. Start with those kids in the cancer hospital in Kiev who are now in bomb shelters missing their chemotherapy. End quote. And this is really the most critical point. Both Noam Chomsky and Henry Kissinger are talking down to the Ukrainians and dictating to them the conditions that they must accept for the good of the United States. This is arrogant imperial narcissism and a complete reversal of progressive priorities. Our demands must not be on Ukraine to capitulate, but on Russia to withdraw to its own borders and halt its illegal aggression. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org, where we blog every day about world affairs from a dissident left perspective. Support us on Patreon. Once again, I support myself as a freelance writer, and I have been foregoing freelance writing work to concentrate on this podcast because I feel that it's important at this moment. I need your support to keep on doing this and continuing to dedicate this amount of research, effort, and energy and time to the podcast. Counter Vortex can be found on Patreon, patreon.com slash countervortex. Please just sign up to, uh, you know, give us a buck or two per podcast. It really makes a big difference. Join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.